Well, this weekend, we're launching a new study, a study of what is easily the most foundational book in the Bible, as well as the most controversial. I'm talking about the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis. Its uncompromised declarations were intended to help us define life and live life to the fullest. But sadly, those same declarations are often seen as barriers to human fulfillment, and that often makes them the target of impassioned, unrelenting attacks. Now, the bulk of the book of Genesis wouldn't seem to invite so much controversy and so much opposition because Genesis consists largely of stories, specifically the stories of men and women who lived long ago, men and women who struggled to follow God in a world that saw that course as a fool's errand. And since the majority of the world's people still view following God as a fool's errand, the stories of those who did that long, long ago don't invite animosity and opposition. They tend to produce yawning indifference. Truth be known, most people give more thought to the latest developments in the life of some celebrity than they will ever give to Abraham's developing faith. But what's true of the bulk of Genesis is not true of Genesis opening lines. (laughs) They're another matter entirely. Those declarations are never greeted with indifference, and they're never received with neutrality. They are either embraced by faith and anticipation, or they are rejected with hostility and anger. And there's a reason for that. The Bible's opening lines declare a worldview that most in the world don't want to view because the assertions of the opening lines of Genesis challenge human arrogance and human self-determination. They unapologetically assume God's existence, assert God's sovereignty, and acknowledge God as the judge of all things, including truth. Genesis opening lines portray a universe that was carefully designed, created, and sustained by God's wisdom, power, and love, rather than a universe that is the accidental product of impersonal, unthinking forces. Genesis opening lines declare God's perfect design and his unchanging, unevolving intentions for every aspect of human existence, including human origin, human meaning, value, equality, knowledge, spirituality, gender, marriage, sexuality, community, and environmental stewardship. In short, Genesis opening lines declare we are not alone and we are not in charge. And in declaring that, they effectively ghetto slap human arrogance. That's why they're never met with neutrality because they don't allow room for neutrality. 
Genesis opening lines call for a decision. Either believe them or reject them. And I would remind you to believe just a part of them is to reject them altogether. And those who choose to reject Genesis' opening lines intuitively seem to understand that ultimatum. That's why they passionately attack, deny, and seek to discredit Genesis. Now, as we launch our study, I'm using a title for this study that I used the last time we studied this book back in 1997. I'm titling our series, Living Out of Eden, because that's exactly where we are. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're living out of Eden. And the recognition of that reality and all of its implications is essential. Here's why. You can't live an abundant life out of Eden until you understand what it means to be out of Eden. Until you have accurate expectations of life. Until you understand that this current world is not the world God intended. One day it will be, but this is not that day. And that's why following him in this day is more like a grueling marathon than a walk in the park. It demands devotion and discernment and courage and untiring faith and hope. As we begin our journey through this book, I'm going to title this first message, The Bible's First Sermon. And I would invite you to join me in prayer. Spirit of the living God, we need you to fall fresh on us for this never-to-be-repeated moment in time. We need you to meet us where we are with what we have. We need you to speak into our problems, into our doubts, into our fears, into our emotions, into our decision-making, into our priorities, and most of all, into our understanding of God's heart. Now, Father, I can't declare your word on my own. I will need your equipping. We can understand it and apply it on our own. We all need your equipping. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Make these coming moments a dynamic, transforming encounter with your living Word. We're not here to gather information. We're here to experience transformation. Let that be the end result of our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. Back in the 90s, Karen and I were privileged to minister to our Alliance missionary family serving in the Latin American nation of Colombia. Bev Rader, a now retired missionary that we frequently referenced here, was a part of the active missionary team in those days. And at that time, the nation of Colombia was in the throes of a violent struggle that has continued to this day. A violent struggle between what were called the FARC, F-A-R-C forces, rebel forces that were frustrated by government corruption and that were also involved in drug trafficking, and government forces that were fearful of total anarchy. To date, that conflict has claimed over a quarter million Colombian lives and has displaced over 5 million people, the majority of them children. 
Now, the region where we were going to be meeting was often the site of rebel activity. In fact, as we were making our way to the retreat center, just a mile from the gate of the retreat center, we drove a stretch of highway where just two days before, rebel forces had been on one side, government forces on the other, firing at one another, and many men had lost their lives there. But the team had rented a retreat center directly across the street from a military base, feeling that we would be fairly safe in that setting. And there, Karen and I stayed in a small A-frame hut. Now, on one end of that A-frame hut, above the place where the wall was finished, there was a triangle, and it was made entirely of glass to allow natural light into the room. And it was at that piece of triangular glass that I unexpectedly heard something from God about Genesis opening lines. Because one morning I was awakened by a loud, incessant tapping on that glass. And when it persisted, I pulled out a chair and stood on the chair to see what was going on. And I found myself face to face, oddly enough, with a black and yellow bird. It was one of the most spectacularly colored birds I had ever seen. And... It was one of the most frustrated. (laughs) Evidently, he could see the beams across the open ceiling in our room and saw in them an ideal nesting place. So he kept flying toward them, only to run headlong into the glass. And undeterred and determined And unaware of what was hindering him, as I stood just a foot or two away, he kept flapping his wings feverishly, his body sliding up the down and glass, down the glass, up the glass and down the glass, and his beak tapping on the glass surface. After a bit, he stopped, and he just sat there. And I could almost hear him thinking, Te esta pasando. Remember, he was a Colombian bird. (laughs) They don't talk Yinzer down there. What's going on? And he looked and... and then he tried again for another 15 minutes. Finally, it appeared he resigned himself to failure and he flew off. And in that moment, that unexpected moment, God's Spirit spoke to me and said, Rock, there is a picture of a life that doesn't recognize the reality of God. Because a life that doesn't recognize the reality of God is one of constant effort but continuing frustration. It wears you out. The things your heart longs for continually elude you no matter how hard you try to lay hold of them. But it doesn't have to be that way. And that is precisely what Moses was attempting to convey when he first uttered Genesis' opening lines to a weary discouraged, depressed, and desperate audience. Let me explain. 
To understand a biblical book fully, you have to understand something of the original audience for its message and the circumstance in which they found themselves. And the original audience for Moses' words was going through an experience much like that bird in Columbia. They were working hard, but they were getting nowhere. And frustration was their constant daily companion. They were the descendants of Abraham, a man who they knew had received great, awesome promises from God. But in their day, those promises seemed like a cruel hoax because they were enslaved in Egypt, the victims of an unjust empire. And day after day after dehumanizing day, they rose early to work late, and there was nothing in it for them. Their sweat produced no equity for them. Their tragic lot was to build the infrastructure of their oppressors, to build oversized monuments to the oversized ego of Pharaoh and the oversized arrogance of Egypt. So hope had essentially died, and dreams, well, dreams were a luxury they couldn't afford, and every day was the same. Same old, same old, same old, same old, no end in sight. And that's when God spoke through his servant, the prophet Moses. But oddly enough, contrary to what you might assume, Moses didn't speak to those people by assuring them of a better future. Instead, he reminded them of a far distant past. He didn't announce what God was about to do. Now, we know now God was about to do some awesome stuff. He was going to bring Egypt to his knees. Every one of those plagues was carefully designed to debunk some imaginary Egyptian deity. God defeated them on their home turf. God was about to set the people of Israel free. He was about to lead them to a land of their own, and he was about to enforce a divine reparations program that would bankroll their future, Egyptians giving them their gold. But Moses didn't begin with the future. He began by reminding them of something God had already done long before they arrived on this earth. He began with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now to grasp the impact of those words in their original context, you must recognize this simple fact. Genesis was a sermon before it was a book. It was a sermon first, a book later. And it opened as it did because the knowledge of God's existence and God's sovereignty is the starting point of hope. If God doesn't exist, if we're alone in an impersonal, unthinking universe, if no one greater than us is watching, if no one wiser than us is at work, if no one more powerful than us is engaged, 
If the outcomes of human history hinge entirely upon the abilities of a human family with a very checkered past, rather than hinging on a good and wise creator, then there is only one logical conclusion to be drawn. Life is a bad joke and death is the punchline. And hope, well, hope is little more than the wishful thinking of people in denial. Wonder why we have so many problems with addictions and suicides in the most affluent and comfortable culture in human history? Because for generations we've been telling our children life is a bad joke. And death is the punchline. And what do you hang your hat on in that? Why go on if that's the reality? Why not just cut to the chase? But if a God who predates the world made both us and the world, then there is hope for the world and for us. So Moses' sermon, the Bible's first sermon, opened with, in the beginning God created. Because God knew we won't hope for better until we have a better understanding of God and we won't begin the journey out of our limitations until we know an unlimited God is with us. Why start a journey that is doomed to fail? Until we know a God big enough to create the heavens and the earth stands with us. And that's why as we begin this series, I want to remind you of this fact. Genesis isn't first and foremost a scientific rebuttal to those who prefer to embrace unbelief. It is a message of hope to those who desire to escape despair. Now, it's not unscientific. God is far ahead of human science. In my brief lifetime pastoring, I have watched things that the scientific world once vehemently denied from the pages of Genesis, now widely accepted as reality. For example, when I started in the ministry, Genesis mentions a Hittite civilization. And scholars and archaeologists said there was no Hittite civilization. There's no evidence of a Hittite civilization. Further proof that the Bible is a fairy tale. Now in my library I have a book that thick on Hittite civilization. Because an archaeologist dug a little deeper and voila. Science is never ahead of God. It's always running to try to catch up with God. When I started in ministry, people mocked the idea of God taking a portion of Adam's body to make woman. And then we began to discover more about DNA and cloning. And now it doesn't sound so mythical and preposterous, does it? But God was ahead of science. But... Genesis isn't primarily a science textbook. And it's not a scientific rebuttal to those who embrace unbelief. 
It is a message of hope to those who desire to escape despair, to those who feel enslaved by their past, by their pains, by their circumstances, by their dysfunctional relationships, by their ugly memories, by their imprisoning addictions, by the crippling expectations of others, by the cruel deeds of others, by the failures of others, and by the injustices of fallen human society. You see, Scripture's first sermon presented a God of power to a people who felt powerless. That's what in the beginning God created was meant to do, bring a sense of helping power to people who felt utterly powerless. And once you recognize that, you'll recognize that when Moses reminded his countrymen, we are not alone and we are not in charge, he didn't do that to humble them. They'd already been humbled. He did that to encourage them. Scripture's initial sermon doesn't begin with an in-your-face argument for God's existence. Nor does it begin with a weak-kneed apology for God's existence. It begins with a matter-of-fact affirmation. The affirmation of a God bigger than your disappointments and more powerful than your pains. A God who can create the universe out of nothing merely through the speaking of his creative word. That's why God is mentioned by name 32 times in the Bible's first 31 verses. And if you count the personal pronouns that refer to him, he's mentioned 43 times in the space of 31 verses. And that's why Satan and principalities and powers and fallen humanity attack Genesis opening lines because man-centered arrogance will always seek to discredit a God centered revelation. Fallen humanity wants center stage. It wants the spotlight. It doesn't want to share center stage with God, let alone step off the stage and let God and God alone be the center. The opening lines of Genesis threaten human arrogance, but the ears of faith hear the earliest announcement of hope. Because if we aren't alone, and if we aren't in charge, then we don't have to settle for the same old, same old. We don't have to settle for a hollow life that disappoints us at every turn, a life that mocks our deepest desires. We don't have to live with the belief that there's nothing more to life than working hard, retiring, leaving a little something to your kids, and then them blowing through it in three months. (laughs) If there is at the beginning a powerful God who creates out of nothing by the mere word of his power. We don't have to spend our lives flying into that window again and again and again and again. And we don't have to spend our lives in an emotional, spiritual Egypt. 
So if you have been beaten up in life, or if you've been beaten down by life, remember, you are not alone. And you are not in charge. And see, that's a, that's a message of hope because if my future prospects are no bigger than little old me, honey, I am out of luck. Almost said something else, but I caught myself. See, I, I've lived on Federal Street too long. In many ways, it would have been more effective, but I would have gotten... I would, got, I would have gotten emails. And I don't need to blow it this close to retirement. (laughs) If we're alone, if we're in charge, where do you find hope? Where do you dream? What are you looking forward to? Why would you look forward? But if we're not alone, and if we're not in charge, if that's Jesus, tell him I'm busy. (laughs) Actually, he already knew. But, Donnie, it's been nice working with you. (laughs) But we aren't alone. We aren't in charge. If you've ever despaired of tasting joy ever in your life, remember you're not alone and you're not in charge. If you feel like those wounds are too deep and too infected to ever heal, remember you're not alone and you're not in charge. There's a big God on the scene. He was here long before you and he desires to be for you. Those who contend that the Bible's first sermon is nothing more than a foolish myth miss the point entirely (laughs) and make themselves foolish because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Scripture tells us, The order of creation, the intricacy of the created realm shouts to the human spirit about the existence and the eternity of God. Scripture also tells us that God has inscribed his laws upon our heart. How do we intuitively know it's wrong to murder, to steal, and to lie? Who taught us that? Not slime, not time. God has written those things upon our hearts. He has placed eternity in our hearts. So here's what the Apostle Paul said. Anybody who denies God is without excuse. They ultimately know he's real. That's why I wonder why atheists spend so much time and so much passion 
talking about somebody who doesn't exist. Explain that to me, Lucy. <laughs> because they know if they acknowledge his existence, they have to acknowledge their need of him. Science is never the issue. Facts, never the issue. Issues in the heart. Genesis opening lines were a message of hope to hopeless people. And they were intended to remind us when hope has come to an end. When you're afraid to hope anymore. There is a God who specializes in creative beginnings. He can make a way, what? Where there is no way. He doesn't always need our cooperation. He rarely needs our resources. He can make something out of nothing. He can make a way where there is no way. He's unmatched in his creative genius and his creative power and his loving heart. So when you come to an end, remember, in the beginning, God. When you feel like you've come to the end of yourself, make God your beginning because anything that makes God its beginning is guaranteed to finish well. We read at the Bible's first lines, in the beginning God created. And in its last chapters, we read of a perfect, restored creation where the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he reigns forever and ever. And the Bible's closing words are, the Spirit and the Lamb say, come, come, I've made a way. You don't have to live at this level. Come, come, come. Let's take a moment to erect a place of prayer in our hearts. If you're already a believer and you've been struggling with some area of your existence and you've come to a place of despair, you've settled that you're just never going to see change and growth or liberty in that area, will you ask God to rekindle the fires of hope in your soul and to make Him the beginning of your hope? And remind yourself that he can create a way where you can't see a way. And if you joined us today and God's been pursuing you as he so often does. And you feel like the God who is pursuing you has said to you today, this is your moment of decision. I want you to step into my kingdom and experience my love and power. And if you feel you're ready to do that, if you're tired of the same old, same old, if you want to see what God can do in the quietness of your heart where God knows your every thought, simply ask God to forgive you for running your own life as if he didn't exist. Repent of that. And ask him to create in you a new heart to open your understanding and invite him to be your Savior and your Lord.
Because if you put him at the beginning, you'll be happy with the end. Mm. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful that the Bible's first sermon was not an angry debate with unbelief, but an affirmation of hope. And as we walk through this ancient book, help us to remember that and rekindle hope in our lives, rekindle faith in our lives, that we might offer a broken world a superior alternative in Jesus. And we pray that in his great name. Amen and amen. Amen.